0: Uh, So, just a little summary of where we've been in the book of Galatians, and I I kidded with the church council a few minutes ago that we're going to be in the book of Galatians till June, and that's actually true, Uh, (laughs) much to uh, Miss Sarah's uh, joy that she had in her own heart uh, for that. The reason being is I don't want to overdo too much uh, theology, I don't want to try to unpack an entire chapter uh, to the extent where you leave with almost an information overload, And so just for tonight, I just want to look at in uh, the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, just one glorious doctrine that Paul is trying to get to us, and that is adoption. But before we even get to that, I do want to do just a little bit of a recap of where we've been in our road to Galatians. In Galatians 1, we saw that uh, God's good pleasure in us is not based on our performance for Him, right? Remember in Galatians 1, we saw that God's uh, pleasure in us is not based on our performance for Him meaning that we do not earn our salvation by performing any type of works. We don't earn God's grace by works, rather we uh, receive it by faith. And so remember that grace, that term grace, in fact, the entire study for this is freed by grace. That, gra- that term grace means that it is an unmerited favor uh, that God gives us by the work of Christ that we receive by faith. So we don't earn our salvation by obeying a list of do's and don'ts which is legalism. Remember, we, we talked about that a uh, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, back when we looked at chapter 1 here. We talked about legalism and that we are, our DNA is built towards that mindset of legalism, that we're built towards works-based salvation. And Paul is trying to get us to walk away from that and walk into the new covenant, which is salvation by faith, not by works. And so this is the power of the gospel in us, that Christ has made us uh, uh, lovely by his grace and by his mercy. And so in Galatians 2, Paul shows us that we want to avoid hypocrisy. We want to avoid hypocrisy, that is, living lives that don't match the gospel we claim to believe. Simply put, it is, uh, are you talking the talk and are you walking the walk? Uh, No one wants to be around a hypocrite, and neither did Paul back in that day and age. Remember, in Galatians 2, he confronts Peter to his face over Peter's own hypocrisy. And so Paul is combating that as well in chapter 2. And then also in chapter 2, Paul describes one of the foundational truths in the Christian life, which is justification by faith and faith alone. You see, we are saved by faith and faith alone. And remember that we define justification as the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the beautiful truth of the gospel, that Jesus exchanged places with us, that we got his position of favor while he got our penalty of condemnation. This is the power of the gospel in us, that we didn't do anything on our own to earn that salvation, but rather it is given as a free gift. And then we are declared righteous righteous. We are justified before the Father. And so, and then in Galatians 3, uh, which is what we did after Easter, uh, we covered 2,000 years of Old Testament history. I don't know if you uh, left here going uh, with an information overload, but I left with an information overload as we went from the promise of Abraham that uh, all all nations will be blessed by him to the uh, covenant that God made with Moses and the law was given and then we looked at those two things and then we tracked 2,000 years of history up to the cross and saw that in everything God was working everything towards the cross in all of history. And so tonight we're going to piggyback on, on this uh, doctrine of justification by adding something that's far more glorious and far more beautiful and that is the doctrine of adoption. And I'll explain that in a few minutes. So if you will, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. And we're going to start. We're going to cover tonight three twenty six to 4, 7. But we're going to start in verse 23 just to have a little context as we go into verse 26. So Galatians 3, verse 23 says this. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, chapter 4, verse 1, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you again for this evening. Lord, I thank you again for this church and and everything that you have uh, done in this body, Lord, for your glory. Lord, I pray, Father, right now that, Lord, you would just meet us where we are on this Sunday night as we go uh, through the book of Galatians and look at this beautiful doctrine of adoption. Lord, I am grateful that, Lord... Uh, We stand justified before your presence, but Lord, I'm also grateful that we are a child of God, that we can sing good, good father because you are a good, good father. So Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would give grace tonight. Lord, I pray that I would decrease, that you may increase, and Lord, you would change us from the inside out to be more and more like your son. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this evening. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so let me just make a case uh, for the doctrine of adoption. Let me make a case for the doctrine of adoption. You see, the main doctrine that we see in Galatians 1 through 3 is the doctrine of justification by faith. This is what Paul is hinging everything on in Galatians so far. is justification being the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Christ. This is the foundational doctrine of our Christian life. This is what we hinge everything on. This is what made an angry German monk in the 1500s write a 95 theses, nail it to a church door, and then we hit the Protestant Reformation. Everything in our Christian life, the fact that we're Baptists here right now, hinges on the doctrine of justification by faith. This is what we... Believe in. This is what we sing about. This is what we preach about. This is what we pray about. The fact that we are no longer stand condemned in our sin uh, by the gracious act of God at the cross, that we don't have to work our way to God. We don't have to make ourselves lovely. We don't make, have to make ourselves beautiful, but rather it is only by a gift of God's grace that we stand redeemed, clean, uh, clean, and we walk in the ways of Christ. Just like we talked about earlier today, that to be holy as he is holy, that comes by the fact of the justification by faith. Everything hinges on this doctrine. But, and I'm going to argue from what J.I. Packer says, that's not the most important doctrine of the Christian life. Rather, the most important doctrine is the doctrine of adoption. Let me explain. I get this quote from J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God. And I'm going to read the quote. I believe I put it on, on uh, the sheet of paper that I, in the handout. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. This may cause raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God on which since Luther evangelicals have laid the greatest stress, And we are accustomed to say, almost without thinking, that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us sinners. Nonetheless, careful thought will show the truth of the statement we have just made, that justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance for the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel, is not in question. Okay? Okay? That is not in question tonight. Justification is still the hinge by which everything rests on and what we as Christians stand on is the idea of justification by faith. That is not in question tonight. Sorry, I lost my place. Justification uh, is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our Maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in this world. And this, the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel, Adoption is the higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. You see, adoption is higher than justification. The doctrine of adoption is higher than the doctrine of justification. Justification makes us right before God the judge. This is what Bo talked about earlier in the year when we were talking about the presence of God. If you recall to mind that series, the doctrine of justification makes us right before God the judge. We stand positionally right before God. Right? Our sins are forgiven. We're no, the, we're no longer held uh, accountable for the guilt. We're no longer held accountable for the sin. Why? Because we've accepted by faith what Christ did for us at the cross. But the doctrine of adoption makes us relational with God. You see, it's not just one thing that we stand positionally uh, free in God's eyes, but also it is the most beautiful thing that the doctrine of adoption makes us children of God, makes us sons and daughters of the Most High. You see, this doctrine of adoption shows that, yes, God the judge looks at us from behind his, uh, his courtroom desk, looks at us and says, You no longer stand condemned. Christ's blood is now on your account. And what Christ did is now, based, is now what you get. And so, but then, now that we stand uh, not condemned, he then steps from behind the desk, walks over to us, and then hugs us. And he calls us son and daughter. And now we are a son and daughter of the Most High. You see, the doctrine of justification is crucial because we get forgiveness of sins, but also the doctrine of adoption gives us the rich blessing of being known by God and get to know God. I'll get to this later, but again, verse uh, 6 of chapter 4 says that we get to cry out, Abba, Father. And we'll talk about what that means later. But that is a rich blessing that comes from the doctrine of adoption. And so before we can, uh, before I can unpack verse 6, what I want us to do is, is just go through this idea of the adoptive father tonight. And we have only one point, okay? I don't think you've probably ever heard of, of a Baptist preacher say he only has one point, but that I only have one point tonight, and that is just, the adoptive father. So look with me back at verse 26 tonight in chapter 3. And it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Notice that Paul does not say sons and daughters or children. Okay? Uh, What I often see here is, well, Paul's being chauvinistic. Paul's only saying sons. Well, no. There's a reason why Paul is using the term sons here. And it is to explain the example that he has in chapter 4. Because throughout the Bible... Uh, we see that God refers to his people as sons and daughters as as noted in isaiah forty three six and also as children in ezekiel sixteen uh, twenty one and so Paul is not being chauvinistic, but rather he 's painting a uh, image, an example that would have been known at that time period within that culture so we, whenever we read the bible we don 't need to put our twenty first century context on it. we need to recall to mind that was written in a first-century context, at least in in regards to Galatians. And so we need to sort of bridge the gap here. So if you will, I'm going to sort of bridge the gap of of what Paul is saying here. Looking back at Galatians 4, uh, 1 through 5. And he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive uh, adoption as sons. You see, in the Jewish, Greek, and Roman culture, the firstborn of the family, uh, the heir to the family fortune, was treated as a slave up to a certain age. So he wasn't just, you know, treated as like the, uh, the prince of everything, but rather he was treated as a slave or a hired hand. So he would have to get his hands dirty. But up to a certain point, just as Paul is saying here that uh, there were guardians and things like that, up to a certain point he would then be treated as the rightful heir that he is and then would be given the privileges of that, of that moment. And so Paul is painting that word picture. And while inheritance was reserved for the firstborn son at the time, Paul does something in uh, 328 to state that God is not like the culture of Paul's time nor like the culture of our time. Look with me back at verse 28 and see that Paul is not painting this picture that the inheritance only comes to but the male child. He says there is either Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are the you are Abraham's offspring, heir according to the promise. And so Paul is painting the picture that all in Christ are now included in the promise of inheritance that comes in knowing God. It's not just for the uh, male child, but it is for everyone that comes in faith to God. And so everyone now in when they come to Christ and asking Christ to be their Savior, everyone can then come to verse 6 and then say, Abba, Father, and have that relationship with God. And that's what Paul is saying here. I don't want y'all to leave here going, well, Paul's being a chauvinist, you know, because Paul's often uh, accused of that. And I'm not going to go into uh, what Paul says in the Corinthian letters, but I'm just looking at Galatians. That could be for another uh, Bible study, another time. And so with this in mind, with that explanation in mind of what Paul is saying here, let's look then at two crucial actions that God does to adopt us as sons. God sent his son so that we might receive the position of sons. God sent his son, Jesus, so that we might receive the position of sons or daughters of God. Look back at Galatians 4.4, 4, and this is where we're going to sort of park tonight. But when the fullness of time had come, You see, the word for adoption specifically means to place someone as an adult son. And God adopts us as sons by sending Christ, which begs the question then, how does sending Christ adopt us as his sons and daughters? How does sending Christ do this? Well, for us to answer that uh, question, we need to look at the contemporary illustration of adoption. So adoption requires someone who claim who, excuse me, someone who comes at the right time. Adoption requires someone who comes at the right time. For those of you who have ever uh, been through the process of adoption, or if you ever looked at the process of adoption, it requires someone who can handle the grueling waiting period. You don't just decide on a whim that, hey, I'm going to adopt so-and-so from Uganda. No, you have to go through grueling process and waiting periods Uh, they're going to do background checks, they're going to do everything that you can think of to see if you're going to be a good parent. And so adoption requires someone who comes at the right time. And we see in verse 4 that God sent Jesus at just the right time for us. So what does this right time look like? Well, when God sent forth his son, it was the right time theologically. It was the right time theologically. Everything in the Old Testament, which is what we looked at in chapter 3, Everything in the Old Testament was leading to Christ's birth. The people of Israel were constantly looking for the seed of the woman that uh, God prophesied back in Genesis 3.15. Every time they're reading the Old Testament story, they're waiting. Is this going to be the seed? Is this going to be, is is Abraham going to be the seed? No. Is Jacob going to be the seed? No. Is David going to be the seed? No. Is Solomon? They kept looking. Who is going to be the one that's going to save us? Who is going to be the one to redeem us? And so the people of Israel are constantly looking at when is the Messiah going to come? And it wasn't just the Jews that were looking for um, uh, hope in the Messiah, but also the secular world, the pagans, if you will. They, too, were looking for purpose. They, too, were looking for hope. We look at the Roman and the Greek culture and we see a people who were constantly looking for purpose and meaning in everything. Even Paul in, uh, in the book of Acts records that he looked and saw that they had a statue to the unknown God. You see they had everything lined up like, okay we have Zeus, we have Athena, oh and we have the unknown God. They too were looking for something. They too were looking for purpose. And so everything was lining up just right at the right time theologically. And it was also the right time culturally and politically. It was the right time culturally and, pol- and politically. Uh, the Greek language had become the common and universal language of the day, perfect for allowing the spread of the gospel. And also the Pax Romania, which is simply meaning the Roman peace, prevailed. Rome had conquered pretty much all the known world to that point in their mindset. And so there was a unique peace right then, where there weren't kingdoms fighting each other, there wasn't city-states at war with each other in Greece. Rome had pretty much secured peace. And so there was this, uh, because of Pax Romania, the Romans helped establish also roads between kingdoms. And so there was a, this ability of travel. There was this ability for trade commerce. Perfect, if you're thinking of the Great Commission, because now we have roads that can go to other places. We have roads that can lead to Galatia. We have roads that can lead to Laodicea. We have roads that lead to Macedonia. We have roads so the gospel can be spread. And so it was the right time uh, theologically and religious, uh, religiously, culturally, and politically as well. And I don't want you to think for a second that the right times that I'm, I'm quoting here or, or, or sharing with you guys is that God's up here twiddling his thumbs going, I don't know. I don't know if it's the right time, Jesus. Hold on one second. Things aren't lining up. No. God is working all of history providentially and sovereignly to point everything to the cross. God is working kingdoms. We see this throughout the Old Testament that God is the one that hardens Pharaoh's heart. God is working all things to the point of the cross. It is not as if God is twiddling his thumbs going, I don't know. God is our sovereign king, of all time and all universes. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and nothing in history catches him by surprise. I love what Joseph says at the end of uh, Genesis uh fifty twenty five, I believe. What you intended for evil, God intended for good, that God can take our sin and use it for his glory, and God can take a kingdom and use it for his glory, which everything was pointing to the cross. So I don't want you to think just because of all these right times, that God was twiddling his slums. No. And so also adoption requires uh, not only someone with the, right, uh, with the uh, right time, but also with the right qualifications. Adoption requires someone who possesses the right qualifications. Like I said earlier, you can't just willy-nilly go up to some adoption agency and say, hey, I want to adopt this kid. You have to have the right qualifications. And so we see and uh, uh, going back to our example of modern adoptions, like I said, you have to go through screenings, you have to go through fingerprint tests, you got to go through background checks, you have to go through home studies. They've got to make sure that you are who you say you are, that you're not some weirdo, and that you're going to be a good parent to this, this child. Well, in a much deeper way, to be adopted into God's family requires the right qualifications. For instance, who can pay the price of sin? Who could pay the price that we owed God for our sin. Jesus. And so God, from the foundation of the world, had been planning all of history to come with the right qualifications of who Jesus was. You see, Jesus is fully divine. Jesus is fully divine. You see, God sent forth his son in verse 4. You see, Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is not some divine surrogate. Jesus is God. God. Colossians 115 says he is the image of the invisible God. John writing to the church in his gospel says in the beginning was the word meaning Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. All things held together in his hand. All things are created by him and for him for his glory. Jesus is God. God. He is uh, the Nicene Creed says also this, that he is the preexistent, fully divine, infinite, the only begotten son of God, begotten of the father, light of light, very God, a very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the father to do what only God could do, which is which was to bear the infinite wrath of God. Now, I know you might be thinking, Dave, we know that Jesus is God, but not everyone that you know knows that Jesus is God. Some people doubt the divinity of God. Some people d- d- doubt that Jesus was fully God, that he, it was some type of avatar or something weird like that. No, Jesus was fully God when he was incarnate. When he came down to earth, he was fully God. He was also fully man. And so if he's fully God, he, can, he has the right qualifications to satisfy the wrath of God. And if he's fully man, that means that he can uh, bridge the gap between us and God. Back to verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of woman. Jesus was fully human. Jesus wrapped himself in flesh. He was not some uh, weird image of God. He was fully human, fully flesh. Jesus cried. Jesus got hungry. Jesus slept. Jesus had needs, just like you and I. But he did it all without sinning. I was telling the students earlier uh, this morning in the book of James as we looked at the Uh, passage in James chapter 1 where it talks about the temptations uh, uh, passage. And I made the comment, Jesus lived this entire life both fully human and fully God and did it without sinning. So all the thoughts, everything that goes through your head, all the temptations, all the sins that you think about, that you, you craft, that you give birth fully to sin and which gives birth to fully death, as James says, Jesus was tempted and yet he did not sin. When I think about that, I'm just amazed because I know I can't even sin without for five minutes. (laughs) I don't have the ability to not go without sinning. And yet Jesus, on this earth, he walked this earth in a way where he was without sin. Praise be to God for that. Because of the fact that he did that, that means that he can do something that we can't do. So Jesus is fully divine. He's fully human. And Jesus is fully righteous. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Jesus was not simply born a man, but a Jewish man. This is why we spent so much time in chapter 3, y'all. But but a Jewish man who grew up in a Jewish home, living and obeying the Jewish laws, which would have been the ceremonial and ritual and uh, moral laws of Moses. Jesus obeyed them all, and Jesus fulfilled them all better than we ever could. Jesus did all of that. For us. And he lived the life that you and I were supposed to live in full obedience to the laws of God. So not only does adoption have to come at the right time, but adoption requires someone who possesses the right resolve. Jesus didn't stop there at just being fully divine, fully human, and fully righteous. Paul continues in verse 4 through 5 of Galatians chapter 4 God sent forth his son, born of woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, Jesus came with purpose. Jesus came with purpose to redeem that which is lost, which is us. Because we've all gone our own way. We've all fallen into sin. We've all chosen things that will dishonor God. We've all chosen things that create shame and guilt like i talked about earlier this morning we all have skeletons in our closet that we don't want anyone else to know and jesus came with purpose and it takes resolve to see it through completion back to the uh example of adoption in our modern time melanie i have uh, some friends back in raleigh uh, who are going through the adoption process they've already gone through the process they've uh, adopted uh two children from uganda and they've gone back to Uganda to adopt their siblings. And so they started this process back seven months ago. And they have hit roadblock after roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. They have gone through different agencies. They've now had to switch agencies. And, you know, that's just a headache in, in and of itself. If you think that uh, doing taxes is a headache, this is a real headache because now they're having to go through a different agency, redo the test, redo the DNA test, redo the thumbprints, redo everything to prove they are who they say they are. And then there's government agents involved. And then I, a few months ago, I was watching a, uh, a video of uh, my friend's wife, and uh, she was talking about the fact that uh, a government agent, one of the United States government agencies from the embassy, and Uganda, they brought her into uh, like a, an interrogation room, which is just frightening. And he's going through all these vi- lists of things. Well, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to, And she just looks at him and says, I will do anything for my children. There is not a question in her mind that even though these two children are not her biological children, these are her children. And in that video, I saw like the mama bear, you know, come out on her, and she was like, I'm going to do this. No matter what roadblock comes, my resolve is to see these children with our family in the United States. She has purpose in what she's doing. And she knows that each roadblock I have seen this time and time again in her Facebook posts and the in the little adoption group that I'm a part in, I've seen that she considers every trial pure pure joy. It may not be easy. And it's hard to go through, but she sees what the end result is, that these children will have a better life once they're here in America with them. They are her children. She has that kind of purpose. I like another analogy to this idea of purpose with what uh, Russell Moore says. And he's a theologian, but he's also an adoptive parent. And just imagine with me if you're in the process of adoption and an adoption agent tells you this. Russell Moore gives this example Imagine for a moment that you are adopting a child. As you meet with the social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old had been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempting repeatedly to skin animals alive. He acts out sexually, though the social worker says uh, doesn't really fill in what that means. She continues with a little family history. This boy's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. Each of them ended their own lives. Think for a minute. Would you want this child? Would you want this child I just described? If you did adopt him, wouldn't, wouldn't you watch nervously as he played with uh, your other children? Wouldn't you watch him nervously as he looks at the knife at the kitchen table? Would you leave the room as he watched a movie on television with your daughter with the lights out? Now, before you, uh, you know, think, oh man, I would never adopt that child. That child pff, is lost, it belongs in an institution. If all you thought there was that you would not adopt that child, then you've forgotten your own sin nature. You see, what Russell Moore did was paint a picture of who we are. We are that child. We are the child that has no hope. We are the child who uh, does not deserve to be adopted. We are the child who does not deserve grace. We are the child that does not deserve forgiveness. What we do deserve is condemnation. What we do deserve is to stand before the judge of the universe and stand condemned for our sin. But God had purpose in his adoption for us. He had the right resolve. He sent Christ for us, both fully God and fully man. And in that, we can have life in Christ because he did what we could not do. He lived the life that we couldn't live, and then he died the death that was meant for us, and then he rose again victoriously in that, over that grave, defeating sin, hell, and the grave. And all we have to do is respond in faith to that. All we have to do is respond in faith to that gospel and live in that and remind ourselves of what we once were, and now who we are. Remember the song we sung just a few moments ago, Good to Good Father? We recall to mind our identity as a child of God, that he is a good, good father, that he, in his right resolve, went after us, sought us, bought us, and restored us. Again, it's not just so that we stand before the judge blameless, even though we deserve every single bit of the blame. It's every bit of the judge who steps from behind the desk, wraps himself, his arms around us, hugs us, and calls us a child of him. Adoption requires not only the right timing, but it requires the purpose. And then with that, uh, with that purpose comes the joy of adoption. Go back with me at verse 6. Paul continues, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son, His Holy Spirit, that God lives in us. Think about that for a second. Let that blow up your mind, that the Spirit of God lives in us, that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in us. When I think about that, I just get excited. That's not even in the manuscript. That's just free for you guys. And then he says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. That term, Abba, is simply put, Daddy. And it's not a baby daddy. I don't, I don't want you to think that it's like a baby colloquial term for daddy. It is an intimate term that we get to use with god my dad jim chambers is in uh, holly springs north carolina right now and me and my brother are the only ones that call him daddy none of y'all get to call him daddy if y'all call him daddy it's going to be weird okay so if whenever they come and visit don't call him daddy only i get to call him daddy because i get to have that intimate relationship with my father i know his voice (laughs) i know his voice (laughs) I remember judgment coming from that voice, but I also remember love coming from that voice. And only I get to call him daddy. The same is true of us in our walk with God. For those in this room that have claimed Christ, who live for Christ, we don't see God as the judge that is going to bring condemnation. We see God as our Father. Now for some of you, you may not have had A relationship with your earthly father that was good. You might have been uh, beaten. You might have had uh, been neglected. You might have just been left alone. I don't know what how your father treated you. What I do know is that we serve a good father who loves unconditionally. Now there is discipline like I said. The writer of Hebrews says that God disciplines those whom he loves, right? But we serve a good, good father. Where your earthly father might have uh, not lived uh, lived the life that you wanted him to live. He may have uh, beat you. I have no idea. But what our heavenly father does is love us in a way that that just changes. And all of that. And we get to know God as our father. We get to know God in an intimate way. And so that verse there. And and because you are sons of God. God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts. Crying Abba. Father. Paul would unpack that term greater in Romans chapter 8, which uh, I look forward to it someday uh, going through Romans chapter 8 with you guys. I love that, that chapter. It is probably one of the greatest chapters in the entire book of the Bible. But Paul unpacks that term in Romans 8 by saying that when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit groans for us with, a term that we, with an idea and term we don't know. And that Spirit, it's the same Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father still crying out for that intimacy, still crying out for the Father. You see, we serve a God who loves us in a way that we can't really fathom in this finite mind, but He loves us in a way that is so glorious and so beautiful that we get to call the creator of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who spoke all things into existence, the one who holds every cell in your body together right now by his hand, the one who's holding the meiosis and the mitosis, all the DNA, the way that your mind works, the synopsis that are firing, everything that God is doing right now by his voice, by his command, this God of the universe, this infinite glorious God, we get to call father. We get to call him daddy. You see, it's not just enough that we are justified by faith. It is also by that justification we get the glorious doctrine of adoption, where we are now sons and daughters of the Most High. And it is the most glorious doctrine that I think is there, even more glorious than the justification by faith, even though we sing about that, even though that is uh, everything that hinges on the adoption. But it, like I said, it's one thing to stand uh, uh, redeemed and not guilty, not condemned by God, it's another to be called a child of God. And it's indescribably glorious to be adopted by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's one that, uh, which is why I left so many little nuggets here in chapter, at the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. But I just wanted to focus on that glorious doctrine of adoption because it is so crucial to this Christian life. It is not just that we are redeemed and forgiven. It is also that we are now a child of God. And in that we rejoice. And in that we sing that he is a good, good father.